0: You like
1: to play some football? And welcome to Gridiron and the Gospel, another episode of our Faith and College Football Podcast. I'm George Schroeder.
0: And I'm Brad Edwards, and it was a, a fun. I don't know what week number we are the season, George. I think it's probably we can put that aside as far as numbering the weeks, but Uh, It was one that had a couple of big games on the slate uh, between relatively highly ranked teams, Penn State at Ohio State, Tennessee at Alabama. Both of those were pretty good games for about three quarters, but neither one ended up being uh, as good as I think most viewers hoped that they would be. That said, college football never disappoints. And we had some some surprises in some other places that we'll get into in just a few minutes.
1: Yeah, but first, we need to talk about our presenting partner, Subsplash. Subsplash allows your church community to access messages, resources, and even give to your church from one place. It also equips church leaders to connect with their congregation in ways you never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a church software. It brings people together, it empowers giving, it fosters discipleship, and it transforms lives. And if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to book a demo at subsplash.com sbc When you use that link, you get a special discount for churches. You do have to use the link, though, to get the discount. Again, it's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash S-B-C, subsplash dot com slash S-B-C. So let's start uh, right off with Ohio State, Penn State, 20 to 12. If I got to make sure I get that right, 20 to 12, uh, Ohio State beats Penn State in the shoe. And what did we learn, Brad?
0: Well, I don't know that I learned a lot about the Buckeyes. Um, my feelings coming out of the game are pretty much what they were going in, which is that this is a team that is much improved on defense. I think one of the better defenses in the country, a defense that is good enough to be able to, to lead them to a national championship. And even though the offense is not what it has been, still has plenty of weapons in order to be able to make the plays they need to make at the time they need to make them. And, and obviously we, we saw some of that uh, against Penn State. We certainly saw it in that final drive against Notre Dame. So this, this isn't the team that's going to you know go out there and blow out a team the caliber of Penn State. But I, I thought to me they were clearly the better team. There was no doubt about that. And so uh, now I kind of turn my attention to, okay, Ohio State-Michigan is that going to be a battle of undefeateds or is it going to be a, a one loss Michigan that is maybe, you know, trying to stay alive? Who knows what the stakes will be in that game. Um, but, but yeah, I came away from it believing that uh, Ohio state's not going to lose before they go to Ann Arbor. Like that, that to me is clear at this point. And then, you know, with Penn state, I, I think there is, there is a question, are they a lot better than they were the last few years? Um. Coming off that performance, it's hard to say. I mean, I guess we'll know more when when Michigan uh, goes to Happy Valley.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've got a lot to learn left to learn maybe about Penn State. Um, I don't know. I I was a little disappointed. I thought maybe they were a little bit better uh, than that. But um, Ohio State's defense is for real. Ohio State's offense is still – I don't know if you want to call it a work in progress or it just is what it is now that we're, what, seven games into the season pretty much with everybody. Uh, But Ohio State looks like – Every bit like the kind of uh, team that has a defense that could win a college football playoff. So uh, I love that. Um, you know, you mentioned Michigan, and we haven't even talked about this because um, it broke in the middle of the week. But the whole Spygate thing with Michigan is just fascinating to me because of the fact. That, all right, all right let, let's put it this way: stealing signs is a common practice in college football. If you can steal it based off of the video. Uh, that you can see your, how your opponents are signaling plays, and I'm not saying it's ethical. I'm saying it's common. Okay, or maybe you can you've got some guy who's really good at like watching the first 15 plays and figuring out the signs that it that they're using, and, and they start doing it in real time. Michigan is now accused, Brad, of, of of sending people out to scout in person, which is against NCAA rules, and that is that is really. Uh, interesting because the NCAA has opened an investigation into that about even this season uh Michigan doing that and and I don't want to get too deep into this other than just to say I do wonder should that impact when the playoff selection committee is ranking teams if Michigan continues along the path of winning and cuz they've looked about as they haven't played anybody yet but they looked about as dominant as anybody we've seen all year all year long consistently should that impact playoff selection committee ranking at some point If were they to continue to win that's my question
0: yeah so the, the way the way I kind of look at this is that I mean you know the the accusations are what they are but at this point can you say that even if that was going on has it impacted the outcome of any Michigan game I mean they have scored um a minimum of 30 points in every game. They have not allowed more than 10 in any game, which, um, I mean, that's impressive no matter who you're playing when you're, what are they, eight games in at this point? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard not to be, um, to be very impressed with what Michigan is doing on the field. And, and it is very difficult to say that this has made some sort of difference in their season. Now, I think we can be pretty sure that if, something was going on that it's it's not going to happen for the remainder of the season. And so I, I think the proof is in the pudding here. So if you're the selection committee, look, I, I think if there's any place where that would become a factor with them would be, you know, is Michigan a team that would get benefit of doubt if it were to have one loss on the season and that one loss was to Ohio State in the season finale? You know, if they, in other words, if they have one loss, but they're not, um, a conference champion. Uh, th- that's where I could see it coming back to bite them, even if the metrics suggested that they are one of the four best teams, um, even with that one loss and not being a division winner. But as long as they win the Big Ten with no more than one loss, I can't imagine this is going to play any factor whatsoever.
1: I think you're right about that. And, you know, while we're at that, while we're at it, I mean, right now, and look, this is a parlor game every year this time before we ever get into November, right? We still got a couple weeks of October left. or No, we don't. Actually, we have one more, one more week of October left in college football. But the parlor game is look how many undefeated teams there are. You know, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if there are five or six undefeated teams when obviously some of it's going to take care of itself, like, for example, you had – Penn State and Ohio State playing uh yesterday, Saturday. We record this on Sundays uh, every week. Um but you know, it's very possible that the loser of Ohio State Michigan deserves to be in the playoff, but there are too many unbeaten conference champions. So you can't really it's hard to compare them against an unbeaten conference champion when they didn't when they've got one loss and didn't win a conference. It's very possible. I mean, this feels like the year if we're ever going to have chaos in 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 the real chaos not the faux chaos who's number five who's number four but real chaos too many teams for a four-team playoff it's going to happen the last year before we go to 12 that's how I, it just feels like it that's the <laughs> vibe i'm getting like like you know you, it's either means that you got a bunch of two lost teams which is what we thought like 2007 or too many unbeaten teams or too many deserving teams so i think we're headed i think that's where we're headed at this point um and I say that knowing, just like I said, every year, every year you 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 think these things, and then it all shakes out at the end, right? But then there's a bunch of teams that feels like could win the whole thing. So um, here's one team that I don't think can win it: North Carolina, because I, I think they're gonna now maybe they run the table. <laughs> what makes if you they say run that, the George. table? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. They met somebody called Virginia. <laughs> In Virginia, lest anybody uh the, powerhouse the last time we it is
0: UVA football. Yes.
1: It's not exactly a powerhouse, that's right. Um so I what happened? What happened to the Tar Heels? And Brad, you were you were uh, almost on them a week ago, right? You were almost on them a week ago. Yes. Uh, thinking, you know, or maybe it was 2 weeks ago, no, thinking I know it was a week sure earlier against Miami. Process. I'm not ready to trust these guys yet. And it turns out you were right. You are just a week or two too late.
0: And that's that's exactly what it was. Um, I I didn't trust North Carolina. I expected they were going to lay an egg somewhere, and they did. Um, But it wasn't at home against Miami. It was even more unexpected. Um, Because losing at home to Virginia at any point in the season is more surprising than losing – at home to Miami, even when Miami's coming off of a loss to Georgia Tech. So, I, I mean, that, that's one of those losses that, I mean, look, if North Carolina does run the table, they win the ACC, you know, they beat Florida State in the process, then, I mean, I, I, I guess there's nothing to say at that point, right? Um, as, as long as the scenario doesn't play out that you described earlier,
1: Right, I mean, it yeah, where well, you the have a bunch leagues. of undefeated teams. Right now, I look at it and I see, I see like an Oklahoma or a Texas maybe the odd team out because of the weakness of the Big Twelve. But, but if North Carolina ends up as the ACC champion and their loss is to Florida, is to uh, I'm sorry, is to uh, Virginia, then I could see the Texas or Oklahoma, Oklahoma or Texas getting in uh, ahead yeah. of them because yeah. of the, how bad that loss is.
0: It, you know, and sometimes we have conversations about like what's the worst loss ever for a playoff team. And I realize we're only going back to 2014. I mean, off the top of my head, it really is, really is hard to say. I know that um, the very first year when Ohio State lost at home to Virginia Tech, 2014, in like week two, Virginia Tech. I can't remember what their record was that year, but they were. I want to say they were a little bit over 500. I they were you know a bowl caliber team. But um yeah, Virginia is a different level like I, I'm not I'm not sure we can I mean to whatever degree people were considering North Carolina much of a contender prior to this, that's obviously out the window. Um, question is can they be a spoiler at this point, right? I think I think that's what we're really looking at unless unless they do win every game the rest of the way and put themselves in position for consideration by having a big win at the end over Florida State. but um, yeah, I mean that was, That was obviously a huge surprise, Um, but I'll I'll tell you another one that was a huge surprise to me. And actually there were a couple, I'll I'll give you two of them and they, they have kind of a, a common theme to them. One was Oklahoma after trailing for, you know, good chunks of that game at home against UCF finally, you know, holds off a two point conversion at the end and gets the narrow win. And then the other one was Washington, you know, only scoring 15 points, um, you know, at home against Arizona State. And and both of them, Oklahoma and Washington, coming off of a huge game. Now, the Oklahoma game against Texas was two weeks earlier. They had a bye week. Um, how How much of an excuse do you think that is for both teams? Because neither one of them looked like a playoff contender on Saturday, even though unlike North Carolina, they managed to come away with a win.
1: Well, yeah, and and Texas also coming off the loss two weeks ago and a bye week didn't look very good and escaped at Houston, right? So 24, twenty four twenty four no, that's yeah. all right. Whatever it was thirty one twenty four, but it was, but it was an escape of Houston. Um, uh, I'm going to say that I think letdowns are real. Nick Saban and and all coaches want to act like all their all their players are automatons, right? But these are eighteen to twenty two year olds with all sorts of things that. That, with full lives outside of football, even though they try to concentrate on football right, and you never know if the quarterback's got a girlfriend issue or if he you know if he's bombing a class or or he's having some sort of issue with his with his brother or whatever um but even as it relates to football, they're not just straight as much as these guys want them to be even keeled they're not just this sort of straight line no unemotional automatons to, uh, and by the way, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. That's just the way I do it. But, um, it just <laughs> Go sounds it. good, right? I'm thinking of like, um, what, do you call the, um, what do you call them at, at Disney World or the Hall of Presidents? What do, you call, what do they call those things, the, those lifelike mannequins? That's not what these guys are, okay? Oh. They, they are susceptible to letdowns. Yeah. They're susceptible to letdowns. They're susceptible to being euphoric after a win and being and having a letdown. Uh, and I'll just I'll just start here too. You're Washington. You you came off that win against Oregon, and yes, you got beat by you got upset by Arizona State last year. But you feel like you're on top of the world, and you have a letdown because you've had trouble coming back down to earth after that huge win in Seattle the week before. And so they they actually looked terrible. They won with a non offensive touchdown. Basically, that's how they won the game. They didn't yeah. score an offensive touchdown. Um, they needed a pick six that stopped a promising Arizona State drive, or they probably lose that game. But here is the point: they won the game. And then, as it relates to uh, Oklahoma and Texas, I think both ends of the Red River Shootout um, suffered a letdown, even though they were idle for a week they had a They had an off week, which is very smart. Because I don't have any idea how either of those teams would have played afterward. And this is my experience with 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 Texas and Oklahoma. Covered a bunch of those Red River games. And the letdown is real because it is essentially like a bowl game in the middle of the season against your most bitter rival. And I'm sorry to say that uh, because I know Oklahoma State fans are upset and Texas A&M fans from back in the day are upset. And maybe it's not the most bitter rival, but it's your most, it's, it is your most—it is certainly the biggest rival. And you play them in the middle of the season in a bowl game setting with the State Fair of Texas, and Georgia-Florida could have a similar situation probably, and we'll talk about them later in the picks because they're coming up this week. But regardless of what happens, win or lose, it's hard to sort of get back going again after that game, I think, because it has the feel of the end of season playing for everything game. And I think that's what happened to Oklahoma. And I am not taking anything away from UCF. You know, I'm I'm very good friends with Gus Malzahn. We're going to talk in yeah. the second half today about about uh, my opportunity. I was actually at the game yesterday in Norman. Stood on the UCF sidelines with my son George, my older son George, only because the night before I was privileged and honored to share the devotional with UCF um, at at the hotel on Friday night before the game, and. So I watched them from inside the team bench area, right? And they played as well as they can play. And John Rice Plumley back at quarterback makes them different than they've been. Um, and they gave Oklahoma all they wanted, but I do think there was a letdown. I talked to a, a friend who's an Oklahoma coach afterward on the field, and he said, man, it was so hard to get back going even last week to get everybody back down to earth to start practicing. And then you realize that UCF has been losing games and had had that horrible come from a, a head loss to Baylor where they gave up a, a what, a 35-7 to 7 lead in the third quarter? Yeah, something um, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, players know that. They see that. The OU players see that. The Texas players know Houston has, has had, had that crazy win over uh, West Virginia, but, but, has, but has been struggling. I mean, all these things go together, and so I think that's what's going on with Washington, with Oklahoma, with Texas, and even Oregon. Is you know, we talked in our extensive pre-show preparation uh, that uh, that basically uh, you know, Oregon took a half to get going to win, um, too. Right? But, you know, they they looked a lot better than the other three teams we're mentioning. Let's put it that way. So, I, look, I know I've gone on and on and on yeah. and on, but I just I'll say one other thing: it, all three of those teams, Washington. Oklahoma and Texas are firm playoff contenders, right? We think that you're going to have a game or two like this along the way. That's just how it works. And the key, if you're going to end up having one of those kind of seasons, and we don't know that any of these three teams will, is you you win those squeakers. And all three of them did.
0: George, if you look at North Carolina and you look at the teams that you were just talking about, you know, Washington and Oklahoma, Texas, I mean – Obviously, yes, one of them lost the other three won, but but you can certainly understand how looking at that opponent, whether it's just looking at their film, their record, whatever it may be, that it it's human nature not to take them as seriously um, as you did the previous opponent. Like I, I, I get all that. Um, this is how I'm going to segue to another team that I don't think by any stretch uh, failed to take its opponent seriously but ended up losing for the second week in a row and that's USC. And and now we we've gone from a you know a team that was considered a solid playoff contender, the top-ranked team in the Pac-12 as we were sitting here 2 weeks ago. And now USC is ranked number 24 in the AP poll. They are the let me count them here, Washington, Oregon, Oregon State, Utah, that's 4. Um, UCLA at 23 is five. So that USC is the sixth ranked team in the AP poll out of the Pac-12. I mean, can you could you have imagined that two weeks ago? Because it's not just that they lost two games, but it's that they lost again to Utah and they lost at home to Utah, and that coming on the heels of basically just being de-pantsed by Notre Dame the week before and now I mean just the prospects for this season for the Trojans are they've just done a 180
1: yeah no I I couldn't now let me just say this the warning signs have been there with USC for anybody who was watching and we've talked you and I've talked about this on this podcast the warning signs were there that they felt like some of those even the later Oklahoma teams more than the earlier Oklahoma teams that Lincoln had um but their defense was so suspect, and then when if your offense doesn't get it going, then you're in trouble, and that's kind of what happened against Notre Dame because the defense played pretty well um, by USC by Lincoln Riley standards against against Notre Dame. Um, it really did, but but you could see it felt like it, something was missing. It was going it, and it just wasn't going to go well. So we've seen it coming, but my goodness, my goodness, what a mess! And, and here's the thing Utah has played USC off its feet even going back before Lincoln right this is only year two of Lincoln Riley at USC uh, and we ought to give a and, and I want to go right back to USC but we ought to give a shout out to to Utah but in effect this is also a what is wrong with you USC thing they're playing a guy who was a walk-on quarterback until a couple weeks ago when they awarded him a scholarship Bryson Barnes Cam rising, the starting quarterback, has been out all season, and after the game they announced he's going to be out all season as he recovers from the knee injury that he suffered in the bowl game. They've got backups at tailback and tight end and a couple other places too. And they they just win. They're six and one. And they and the reason they win is because Kyle Whittingham built some builds them from the inside out. It's crazy. Yep. And then the opposite but but the opposite of the shout out is so they go win it with the walk-on quarterback engineering a winning drive for the field goal to end the game, a walk-off field goal, at the Coliseum. And meanwhile, Ka- and meanwhile, you've got Caleb Williams, your Lincoln Riley, you've got Caleb Williams for three seasons going back to his de- his freshman year at OU and loaded rosters at both of those programs, and you're not going to go to the playoff with him. So Kyle Whittingham at, at Utah is is – is building a program where the teams are greater than the sum of their parts. Meanwhile, USC and, and some of those later Oklahoma teams appear to be – I understand they're missing some defensive players or their defenses just you – know, they don't have the same players on defense that they have on offense. But they have loaded rosters, and they feel like they play below, less than the sum of their parts. That's where I am. And I know it's what we do is we overreact every week, right? That's what we do. And we talked about this going into the season after week one and week two. But we've seen this with USC over and over and over again, or with Lincoln Riley going back to Oklahoma over and over yeah. and over
0: again. Or with Lincoln Riley.
1: Am, am I – hey, just – I mean, please, I mean, punch some holes in that theory. But I think we've seen it.
0: Yeah, yeah, we have. We have. and And like you said, even though – I'm really surprised that it's happened the way that it has. Like you said, it's not just they lost at Notre Dame. I picked Notre Dame to win that game. But to, to lose as decisively as they did and then come home off of that loss and lose to a Utah team that uh, has the limitations you were just describing, this is not the Utah team from the previous two years. And um, so I, you know, I think when you're looking at it from the USC perspective, I, here's the other thing that was surprising is that you know you had Caleb Williams look incredibly human two weeks ago throwing the three interceptions against Notre Dame. And then last night, it's not that he played terribly, but he had no touchdown passes in that game. So to have for Caleb Williams to have back-to-back weeks statistically, one with three interceptions and then the next one coming off that loss to have zero touchdown passes, and, and only one rushing touchdown to go with it, um, sometimes... Sometimes those stats can not necessarily tell the whole story. But I, I think in this case, they do. I mean, this is part of the reason that, that they lost. And it, it is a head-scratcher if you're, if you're USC. And, and I, you know, whether there's any buyer's remorse with Lincoln Riley, um, that's hard to say because, look, now they go to the Big Ten. You know, after this year, now you're having to take on uh, Ohio State and Michigan and, you know, who, who knows who else could rise up. Uh, in addition to to some of the same teams in the Pac-12 that they're having to deal with this year, like Washington and Oregon, so um, yeah, they, I, I don't feel they don't great have to play right Utah now about the future. If I'm a USC fan, they, they don't. Have to don't play and Utah that's good, you know, it's funny, George. I was watching <laughs> that game, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, about preseason when we did our most underrated teams. Uh, we're not going to say who we thought was the most overrated because that would make us look bad, right? We'll skip over that. But I know I, I took Oklahoma as the most underrated in the preseason. You took Utah. And the way you described it, and I remember you throwing in with the description, like, um, I feel bad. You said, I feel bad for the Big 12 bringing this program in because the rest of those teams don't know what they're up against. And, um, and and this is playing out again. You're seeing Kyle Whittingham do what he's doing with this roster just underscores that this is a program that should have a lot of success in years to come in the Big 12
1: every single year they they do this. And and, and I don't mean that they're always going to win it, but they're always in it. And it doesn't really matter who the personnel is. And Kyle Whittingham is one of the very, 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 very best coaches in the country. There's no question. He has built a program that is just culture. Coaches love to talk about culture, but there is a culture of toughness with that program that is amazing. Um, You know, and, and I did say, I think the Big 12 programs better be ready to pack a lunch. That's what I said, I think, when we were uh, talking about that in the preseason. And now you might go, hey, wow, this thing's wide open. The Big 12 is wide open for Colorado to come in with Dion and his skill position players. I'm saying, no, the Big 12 is wide open. And, and I'm not saying Dion won't make some waves there. Colorado won't make some waves in the new look Big 12. I think they've got every chance to do that. But Utah is the one that I look at and I go, watch what happens when those guys get in there.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, before, before we move on to the second half, George, let's, let's throw in one other conversation real quick. And I know almost every week we end up talking about Alabama because even though the record looks very Alabama like at this stage of the season, you know, I mean, you would expect going into the, uh, the, the final week of October, they're going to have no more than one loss. And that's exactly where they are. But for, a lot of yesterday's game against Tennessee, and especially the first half, it was just obvious yet again, this is not a typical Alabama team. The question is, can they find a way to do it for, you know, four more SEC games? And when I say that, I mean the three that are remaining in the regular season and then the SEC championship game and end up where Alabama usually ends up, which is in the playoff after after all that we've seen and all the limitations that we've documented.
1: Well, and, and I... Look, outscored Tennessee, what, 27 nothing in the second half, I think is right. You know, because you're down 20 to 7 and you win 34 um, 20. So kudos to kudos to, to Bama for doing that. But I keep looking at them and, and I, I've been the guy who's been kept saying um, Nick Saban has teams that morph over time, they develop over time. And so maybe we're seeing that, but and they do keep winning. But I think it's at least as much a product of the fact that the league is down around them as it is Alabama is morphing. I do think they're morphing. Right. Um But I keep looking at their offense, and I'm just like, yeah, no, this ain't it. And their defense is, is credible. But by Alabama
0: standards, it's not like defense one of is the pretty best good. defenses yeah. they've ever had. Um, but it's better than the previous few years, or at least the previous two for sure. Yeah. No, that's right. I just
1: think the SEC West is is – I don't know. We'll see what happens in uh, what a Blah. couple of weeks, two or three weeks, when LSU comes to town. That's going to be the that's going to be the couple tell, weeks, yeah. So right? they, and it, it, maybe that's the only real shot anybody yeah. has t- to beat them at this point. But LSU coming to town, we know LSU can score. We don't know that LSU can play defense, but we know LSU can score. The question is, can Alabama keep up with an LSU team that can score, or or w- are they good enough to really slow them down?
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, that's what it comes down to. Because yeah, Alabama will be off uh, this this coming weekend, and then then they'll play LSU. And actually, I believe both teams are off uh, this coming week because they're they're usually they're usually both uh, coming off of an open date before they play each other. Um, but yeah, LSU is a very good offensive team, and even a good defense. And I think Alabama is a good defense is going to struggle to keep them under 30 points. So this looks like a game Alabama is going to have to score 35-plus to be able to win. Even against an LSU defense that isn't that great, can they do that? Um, and, and I mean, the, the question, George, is w- which is the real Alabama? Is what we saw in the first half against Tennessee? Or is it what we saw in the second half against Tennessee? And if you're watching them game after game, you've seen a lot more of first half. Alabama. In fact, it usually is the first half. I mean, this team has been notorious this year for just no showing in the first half. And I don't know if they're making incredible adjustments or if it's the pep talk or what it is, but especially on offense, they go out there in the second half and look like a completely different team. I don't think you can beat LSU playing only two quarters of offense. And I I think that's what it comes down to in two weeks. If Alabama is going to keep a one in the loss column.
1: Well, man, listen. I, I promise you, we didn't get to everything we could have gotten to. Even in every single topic we talked about, but it's like every week we can only we can only talk college football for so long. Uh, and now we got to get to the uh, locker room and get ready for the second half. When we come back, we're going to talk about faith, and uh, uh, I alluded to it earlier, uh, but I was honored to share a devotion with the UCF football team on Friday night. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. When we come back right after this on Gridiron and the Gospel of Faith and College Football podcast.
0: Welcome back in to Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith and college football uh, podcast. This is presented by Subsplash, the leading engagement platform for your ministry. You can book a demo at subsplash.com slash SBC. When you use that link, you'll get a special discount for churches, but you have to use that link for the discount. Again, that's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash SBC, subsplash.com slash SBC. So in the second half of our podcast, as the loyal listeners know, that's when we uh, spend time talking about our faith. And uh, we started off with a segment called On My Heart, which is brought to you or brought to us, all of us, by Legacy Way. Uh, Legacy Way, giving glory to God by sharing his love through generosity. Find out more at LegacyWay.org. So, George, you've mentioned it a couple of times that uh, you had the honor of speaking to the UCF team on Friday night before their game against Oklahoma. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about uh, what that was like and a little bit about uh, what what you spoke to the guys about.
1: Yeah, well, so listen, it it was a high honor, first of all. And so I am grateful to uh, Gus Malzahn, the coach of UCF, who has been my friend uh, for many, many years, dating back to when he was a high school coach, Uh, and at a very small high school that no longer exists in the uh, Mississippi river Delta in Eastern Arkansas. And we got to know each other and became friends. Neither one of us knew we would go on to do the things we've done. Um, but Gus and I talked during the off season and, um, he was gracious and invited me to do the UCF, uh, devotional on Friday night in Norman before they played uh, Saturday yesterday at Oklahoma. And uh, it was cool because I got a chance to hang out uh, with uh, my, my daughter, uh, who is a uh, who lives in uh, graduated from University of Oklahoma and is a teacher in uh, Norman Public Schools, first year teacher. And then also my older son, George, as I mentioned in the first half of the podcast, came up and from Waco, where he's a Baylor senior and hung out with me. But in the devotional on Friday night, I just began thinking in recent weeks, what would God have me share with these football players and they're not compelled. They're not required to attend this devotional. Okay. Um, they're not required to be there. So, uh, and, and I'm, I'm kind of grateful for that. Right. But a good number of them were several dozen college football players. What would, what would God have me share? And, and he brought me to, um, really, uh, Luke five, Verses 17 through 26. I'm not going to read the entire passage, but it's the passage where Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, and he's inside this house, and it's so stuffed full of people that nobody can get in the door. And so a group of four friends, if you go to if you go to Mark, it's four friends, Luke doesn't say how many friends, carried their friend uh, to Jesus. Took, took him up on the roof on his bed. He was a paralytic. He was a paralyzed guy. And they unroofed the roof is what the Greek literally says. They unroofed the roof. They took the roof apart and lowered him down into the room. And you can kind of imagine the scene forcing people to like scurry away to make room for this bed coming down from the ceiling. Right. And I always think about the angry homeowner. How's that going to go? Right. But I had the opportunity to, well, no, I thought about that. And I actually mentioned that to the, to the, to the players, right? I mean, think about the angry homeowner. How's that going to go? Your roof is coming apart, but think about like, I said, look, put yourself in the scene. You got there early enough for a seat. You're sitting on a couch three feet from, from Jesus who's teaching or, You got there later, and you're sitting on the floor in the middle because it was the only seat left, and you found a way to squeeze yourself in there, and all of a sudden, grit starts coming from the ceiling, and you look up, and it opens, and a bed starts lowering down, and you have to squeeze out of the way. I mean, put yourself in that scene. And so what I told them was, and and look, and, and I'm giving you a very condensed version of this, but... If you know, if you know the story, and most of our listeners probably do, a lot of times we talk about what Jesus did, and appropriately, we talk about what Jesus did in this story. He healed the guy, right? First, he forgave gave his sins, and then he healed them to prove his. Uh, he healed him, and so he proved his authority, right? Or maybe we think about the opposition that Jesus got, even in that moment, from the religious leaders, who they weren't excited that he was healing people; they were just upset that he was around. And when he said, your sins are forgiven to the guy, they got really upset. Or maybe we think about the guy getting up and picking up his bed and walking home. Maybe we do that, right? A miracle. I mean, a crazy, cool miracle. And, he, and in verse 25 of Luke 5, it says that, that you know immediately he rose up and he picked up what he'd been lying on and he went home. So he's carrying his bed. He went home glorifying God. That's another thing we should appropriately think about. Or also appropriately in verse 26, it says, amazement seized them all, meaning everybody who was there and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying we've seen extraordinary things today. And so I wanted the players to think about how extraordinary this was. But here's what I wanted them. And there was so much more than just the things I mentioned, right? We could talk for hours about all the, all the things that, that we can learn from that passage, but here's what I asked him. What about the guy's friends? What about the guy's friends? And I, and I told the, the UCF players, I want you to think about your closest friends. Maybe Maybe it's a guy who's on the team. He's even sitting next to you in the room. Or maybe he or she is back in your hometown. It's a high school buddy, or it could be a college classmate. But I want you to think about your closest friends, kind of your ride or die, right? And I asked them, do you love that friend? Do you love that friend? And then I just said, I want to talk about, I want to show you friends who truly love their friend. These four guys, again, that's parts from Mark, that it was four of them. They determined they would do almost anything. They heard about this guy, Jesus, and they determined they would do almost anything to get him to Jesus. They determined they would almost do almost anything. They basically, I mean, they basically tore somebody's house apart to get him to Jesus. And that's believing that your friend meeting Jesus is actually an important thing for your friend. That's, that's believing that your friend meeting Jesus is of ultimate importance. And so what I asked them was this, do you have friends who need to meet Jesus? Do you have friends that need to meet Jesus? I would, I'm guessing all of us do, and we can picture those friends in our minds right now. And so my question is, what are you willing to do? This is what I asked the UCF players. Do you care enough? Do you think they really need to meet Jesus? And what are you willing to do to get, to your, get your friend to Jesus? And so I just said, think about these four friends. First, they had to believe. They had to believe Jesus could and would heal their friend. And they had seen it. It's all over the four Gospels. Jesus was teaching and healing the crowd the, the people. And everywhere he went, he drew crowds. So they'd either seen it or they'd heard about it. And they believed that he had the answer to meet their buddy's need. Okay. And so they also believed that their friend having, uh, being, you know, having his needs met by Jesus was worth it, that it was worth doing whatever it took. And so what I asked them was if they were Christ followers, if you are a Christ follower listening to this right now, why is it worth doing whatever it takes to get your friend to Jesus? And it's because you know who you were. You were dead in your sins, you were headed to hell, and Jesus saved you. He met your ultimate need. And so let me let me just let me just say that's what I shared with them. That's what I shared with them. And and I uh, and I've got to be honest with you, we don't have to unroof the roof and make homeowners angry to get people into Jesus. All we gotta do is be willing to tell them about him. We need to live a life that is following Jesus, and we need to tell our friends about him. And so I just said, let's focus on those four friends tonight and ask ourselves if we can be that kind of friend to the people we say we love. That's what I talked about. Um, and and so it's on my heart um, because even as I talked about it with them, I could think of three or four people that I know who are my friends who need Jesus. Some of whom I've shared Jesus with, um, others I need to. And my guess is that everybody listening to this podcast can come up with some people that they need to do that with too, including pastors who listen to this podcast, you know, friends that need Jesus.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for that, George. Um, as you mentioned, that's a story that most of our listeners are probably very familiar with and I've heard a lot of takes on it, but it, but that is not a way that I've ever thought about it before. My my favorite part of that story, and I'm sure I'm not alone, is how Jesus starts out with forgiving the man's sins. And even though, I, you know, I mean, obviously the point that Jesus is making is that is the most important thing I can do for you is to forgive your sins. That is the most important thing that all of us need from Jesus is forgiveness. And And yet that wasn't what they came for. Uh, obviously, um, they showed great faith, but it wasn't faith that he was going to forgive their sins. It was faith that he was going to heal their friend. And you just wonder in that moment, what are they thinking when Jesus says your sins are forgiven? It's like, oh, well that, okay, that's nice. But what about, you know, and obviously Jesus eventually got there, but I never thought about it from the angle that you mentioned, um, which is not just the faith they showed, um, but the links they were willing to go to for their friend. And, you know, it's funny that you had, um, you'd given me a little bit of a hard time last week for doing an On My Heart that was convicting. (laughs) And that's what you just gave to us this week because I can't help but be convicted uh, by the knowledge that I I have. I I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that there are people listening to this podcast who don't have friends that they've never shared the gospel with, or maybe they did a long time ago and they haven't tried to again. And and as you said, it, we're not asking people to, you know, climb up on a rooftop and destroy private property and, and things like that in order to, uh, to help someone come to know Jesus. And so what's holding us back? Um, it, it, it's a great angle. And, and I appreciate uh, you, you know, Presenting it to us in that way, and then obviously, I um, also um, really appreciate Legacy Way being the sponsor of this segment, and be able for uh, for everyone to hear what's in our hearts week after week. Uh, thanks to Legacy Way.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it just as I as I was praying about and thinking about what would I want to share with those guys, it just became um, it just became obvious to me that it was like, it struck me that, that look at these four guys, look at these, look at this man's friends, right? Listen, I want to focus on Jesus and what he did. And you're, you're exactly right. That, 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 you know, the, the, the primary focus of that passage is Jesus is forgiving the man's sins and he's showing people he has authority to, to forgive the man's sins, right? In that moment, um, and that the you know, and then there's all sorts of sort of ancillary sort of themes in there. The religious leaders' opposition, and everything else. But I thought to myself, you know, I have no idea what how devoted the followers of that of Christ that those guys were, right? Because for all we know, they were just guys that were like, this guy heals people. Let's take our friend to him. But they loved their friend, and so if you're a Christ follower now, two thousand years later, you have every opportunity. Um, and you have the responsibility and the privilege and you, if that, if you love your friends, right, we're supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves and neighbors is everybody. But in this case, we're talking about, these are our actual friends, the people we already say we love. And those guys were willing to do whatever it took, um, what are we willing to do to get our friends to Jesus, the people we say we love? So that, w- that was it. It just sort of was like, um, you know, you've had this happen when you've talked to, 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 to different um, groups and things like that, and you've been praying through what should it be. I know that's true of you, uh, Brad. I know that's true of some of our listeners, too, who are in ministry. Um, it just became clear that that was the message that God had for me. And so it's on my heart. And even as I was talking with them uh, Friday night, two nights ago, it was like, what about this guy? What about this guy? What about this guy, George? You're talking to these guys about doing this and taking their friends to Jesus. What about these friends of yours? And so one of the, one of the commitments that, I, that I'm making is I'm going to go take Jesus or bring my friends to Jesus, even if it's some of the guys that I've already, as you mentioned earlier, I've already shared Christ with years ago. Well, I need to share Christ with them again. So that's that's it's kind of where I am, um, and that was what was on my heart.
0: I was just gonna say, I said I said it before. I'll say it again. Thanks, thanks again to Legacy Way for um, giving us this opportunity every week. To share these things with our audience. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, George, were there any other, uh, highlights of being able to talk to the team that, uh, you want to <laughs> share with us outside of just what that basically is? Oh, message I meant was? to
1: tell you this. And I, and I was going to tell you in the first half, but we had so much football to talk about. This sort of fits football. So I told you that after the, after, uh, Saturday morning, my son George and I w- were privileged to stand on the UCF sidelines, right? And so we, we stood in the bench area and we stayed out of the way and just kind of watched the game from there. But right before the game started, um, the kicker came up to me and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Would you pray for me? His, this young man's name is Colton Boomer. His last name on that UCF jersey is Boomer, which is kind of funny if you're what playing Oklahoma when not, their whole not, thing not is. Not only for a kicker, sooner, but to right? be playing against Oklahoma, but, but, right? Um, and so. Uh, he said, would you pray for me? And I, and I was like, well, yeah, I'll pray for you. I wasn't expecting it, but I, because I'm just, I'm not the guy who is always doing their devotions. I'm just some guy who showed up on Friday night. They'd never heard of or met before, but Colton had been in the devotion, Colton Boomer. And he said, would you pray for me? And so I did. And so it wasn't very long prayer. I mean, it, we're, we're two minutes from kickoff, a minute from kickoff. Um, And so, and and Oklahoma was going to kick off, so he didn't have any immediate duties, right? But I prayed, and I just said, and I just asked the Lord to keep him safe from injury and to keep his teammates safe from injury. And I asked God, I said, God, would you help Colton uh, perform well today? Help him to take the things he's practiced and perform well today. And so it was, you know, 25, 30 second prayer. Then Colton goes out and kicks the fire out of the ball all day long. And we talked in the first half about how UCF almost pulled the upset. Well, Colton Boomer had plenty to do with that. Had two or three field goals. You know, obviously was perfect on extra points. Meanwhile, OU's kicker, um, you know, missed one left, missed one right, kind of had a tough day. Colton Boomer sitting there putting them through the uprights at all points. And as you mentioned in the first half, they it came down to they missed a two-point conversion or or stopped on a two-point conversion. But then... With, with you know uh, less than a minute left, or about a minute and 10 seconds left, they tried an onside kick. It skittered through the first Oklahoma player's hands and barely was recovered by Oklahoma. In the moment you didn't know who had recovered it, I thought to myself, I'm in Norman, a place that my kids grew up, <laughs> a place where all my friends are big Oklahoma fans, and tomorrow I'm going to actually um, – preach a sermon at a friend's church in Norman. And that's what I did this morning. And I'm, I'm, it was an honor to do that. And if UCF recovers this onside kick, they're going to go down and they're going to get 15, 20 yards. And Colton Boomer is going to kick it through the uprights. And when Colton Boomer does kick it through the uprights, I'm going to have to apologize to all the Oklahoma fans the next morning when I, when I start that sermon. <laughs> and obviously I'm kidding, but it was really kind of fun. I I, I really enjoyed yeah. doing that. Uh, it was, it was, uh, such a ton of fun to be able to spend time with the UCF team and to to share that devotion with them.
0: Well, it sounds like uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, Gus asked you to do it again. Um, maybe every week, the rest of the season, the way they played George coming off of that, um, you might be a hot commodity now, uh, with, with the Knights, but, So the big question now, George, is if UCF shows up in our pick segment, will you be able to pick against them (laughs) after that experience? I think that it's going to be really difficult for you. Fortunately for you, um, UCF is not on our list of picks for this week. And of course, our pick segment, uh, as always, is brought to you by Better Man. Better Man is calling an audible. They're giving men an easy to use playbook, a timeless strategy for how to win as a man. A free resource for small and large groups. Betterman is perfect for any gathering. Check them out at betterman.com. So here we go. You know the drill. Five games, picking winners. Let's start off with, uh, I guess, the team that you just watched, Oklahoma, this week at Kansas.
1: Yeah, listen. Uh, that was not an inspiring performance by Oklahoma. Other than that, they won the game, found a way to win the game with a couple of touchdowns in the final minutes, and made a made a defensive stop with a two point conversion stop. Um, that said, uh, and and I think Kansas is pretty good. That said, uh, and I think OU will win this game. I think they that there was a Texas post Texas letdown. And, and I think uh, that uh, as good as, as Kansas is, especially offensively, I, I think that uh, Oklahoma will rebound and play better. Let's put it this way. If I'm wrong on this, then we will completely reevaluate what we think about Oklahoma and we'll start to, to do – but let me just but, – but here's what I'm saying, though. I think, A, there was a post-Texas letdown, and, B, that every team has to survive this kind of scare – on their way when, when they're on their way to some sort of a, a really good season. Texas did the same thing against uh, uh, Houston this this week. So I'm going to go with Oklahoma at Kansas and, and pick the Sooners.
0: All right, I'm going to go with Oklahoma as well. Um, but I think this, this is one of those games that may be a good uh, tip off to Sooner fans whether things are going to be different under Brent Venables than they were under Lincoln Riley. This feels like the type of game where Oklahoma might have slipped up and, you know, use that mulligan after a big win over Texas, you know, like this, is, this is kind of the equivalent of going to Iowa state and losing. Um, so um, not, not saying that, um, you know, that it ended up uh, ruining seasons because most of the time they still got in the playoffs, but this does feel like that type of setup where they might have been uh, upset you know, on the road against a, a capable team and not a team as talented as they are, um, but a team certainly that, that uh, could pull the upset. But I, I'm with you, George. We're both going to go with Oklahoma. All right, uh, Florida versus Georgia, uh, as usual, in Jacksonville.
1: Well, let me just say this. Florida has been better uh, as the season has progressed than I thought they were going to be. Uh, Georgia has not been what we kind of thought they would be, and they've only really been what we thought think or thought they could be once so far. And as you mentioned, the first half of the podcast, Brock Bowers is out. But that said, I I feel like you've got to go with Georgia here. I think they are the team easily in the SEC with the highest ceiling. Maybe the team with the highest ceiling in the country. Um, although, you know, there are certainly some other other teams that, that would like to argue that. And I just feel like Georgia's the better team. And I think it's it's a fairly easy pick for me. I'm going Georgia over Florida.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one too. It is a fairly easy pick for me. And even though, you know, I, I do believe Florida is better than say Auburn who gave Georgia all they could handle for uh, most of four quarters. I, I, I still would be really surprised if Florida takes this one to the wire, even with Georgia, not having Brock Bowers. And by the way, they might've lost to Auburn without block, without Brock Bowers. Cause he was a huge part of, what they were able to do in the fourth quarter to, to turn that game around. Um, This is really going to be intriguing. I think over the next few weeks, just to see how Georgia plays without Bowers, because he is, he's not just simply one piece of their offense. He is, you know, arguably the most important piece of that offense. And they haven't been great offensively for most of their games this season. So, um maybe we're shortchanging florida but i'm with you uh on on georgia just feeling like they're just too talented overall to to lose this game. Oregon at Utah. This is a fun one. Um because i think these are two, you know, obviously two legitimate contenders here in the Pac-12 but with both of them having, you know, already taken a loss, the uh chances of making the conference title game for the loser of this one um, will take a big hit. So, so who do you like Uh, Oregon going to Salt Lake?
1: Man, everything in me wants to pick Oregon um, because I think they're really, really good. I think, um, you know, listen, they were, they were a bounce of the ball away from us talking all about them after that game in Seattle a week ago uh, instead of Washington. And so you do that on the opponent's home field like that. And, you know, you, that says a lot, but man, there's something about this Utah team, and now they're playing at home. And so I think the odds makers are going to go with Oregon, and, and I know they already are, uh, and, and and we don't really care. We don't have friends in the desert. We're not that kind of a podcast. You can go find those podcasts, but I think I think Utah's they've got something going on here. So um, I'm going to go out on a limb and pick Utah, which means that my son George is going to disown me. But there we go.
0: <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to go on the other side. Uh, I'm going to go with the Ducks, and you know, we look. We we've talked about how uh, earlier in this podcast about how Utah has kind of had USC's number. They've also had Oregon's That's right. number, and you know, and and even though Oregon in recent years and, and we you know give uh, Mario Cristobal a lot of the credit for it uh, as well as Dan Lanning has become a much more physical like line of scrimmage team than they were you know in the uh, in the years under uh, under Chip Kelly and you know when they were when they were making uh, national title games and I mean later under Mark Helfrich as well but um I feel like it's a different type of Oregon team. And yet at the same time, when they've come up against Utah, Utah has been the superior team. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think this Utah team is as talented. Maybe maybe that's, I mean, that, that might even be obvious. This Utah team is not as talented as the previous two. And so for, for that reason, you know, an Oregon team that was, you know, a, a late game clock management mistake away from winning at Washington uh, to me should be able to to still win at Utah as difficult of a place as it is to play. So I'm going with Oregon, but I, I agree with you. This is a really tough call, but it's a huge game in the Pac-12. Um, speaking of the Pac-12, uh, we're going to go there a second time. This one, this one's intriguing because the home team in this one, um, after looking a little shaky early in the season, has – Start to play a lot better. So we're talking about Oregon State at Arizona.
1: Yeah, listen, I think Jed Fish has done a tremendous job uh, at, at Arizona, especially this season. Uh, and they are a lot better than we thought they were going to be. Uh, and, and they have grown as the season's gone on. That said, uh, Oregon State, you know, Washington State has finally maybe kind of fallen a little bit, right? They got beat by Oregon, uh, the you know, Saturday, yesterday. Oregon State remains, I think, the, the program that you look at and you're not paying attention to them and could possibly win the entire Pac-12. We, we've talked about Washington. We've talked about Oregon. We've talked about Utah. We used to talk about USC. Oregon State is sitting out there, and they're going to have something to say about all this, and it's going to start in Tucson when they dispatch the Wildcats. Uh, I mean, Jonathan Smith has really built himself a solid Gritty program, and they're built in the mold sort of of what Kyle Whittingham does at Utah, and I don't mean that Jonathan Jonathan Smith is intentionally trying to do the same thing. I mean they have that same sort of lunch pail feel. So Oregon State wins in Tucson.
0: All right, and I'm going to go with you on this one. And you know Arizona was so impressive dismantling Washington State a couple of weeks ago, but. Washington state is a completely different type of team than Oregon state for the reasons that you just mentioned. And so um, I'm figuring that, you know, any team that matches up really well with Washington state doesn't necessarily match up well with Oregon state. So even though the Beavers are on the road, uh, I'm going to take them uh, along with you. So we'll be, uh, we'll be on the same side of uh, that's three out of four (laughs) so far. We'll see about, if that's four out of five, because the final game is Tennessee coming off that loss at Alabama at Kentucky. And uh, this is – I mean, what are the stakes here? I'm not really sure that they're all that big um, because, you know, these, these are teams that uh, need a lot of help. But at the same time, in order to have the type of season they want to have, this is a game that both of them really need to win.
1: Yeah, and, and listen, if you're a Tennessee fan, you have to be just – downcast after the first half up 20 to seven in Tuscaloosa and then you don't score and you get basically blown out when you get blown out in the second half by an Alabama team that is you know we talked about them it's not not your typical Alabama team I don't know what to make of of either of these teams I'm I'm not super high on either one of them not super high on either one of them Um, I think Tennessee has the higher ceiling but I'm going to go with the home team here. I'm going, I'm going with the home team this time. I, I just feel like, and I, I, I don't, I don't really have a good reason, but I just feel like Kentucky's going to win it, and so I'm just going to go with them. I think maybe the hangover for Tennessee after just how badly things went in the second half is going to be a problem. So I'll go with Kentucky.
0: All right, um, this, this is a tough one for me, and uh, maybe just for the uh, fun of, of our, our competition here, I'm going to go in the other direction. <laughs> That's what you got to do. I'm going to go with Tennessee, but, man, uh, you know, look, I'll say this because Joe Milton, Tennessee quarterback, has had a little bit of a shaky season, and uh, it clearly is not as um, made for that offense as, as Hendon Hooker was and has not performed to the level that Hooker did last year. And so it's easy for people to look at him as kind of the weak link or the reason Tennessee's not as good. That said, I thought he played very well against Alabama, and uh, he was not the reason that they lost that game. So whether he's turned a corner or not, I'm not sure. I know that um, a spot like this is is has the potential for a quarterback to play poorly, and, um, and especially someone who already has struggled a lot this year. So I could see this being a a Kentucky win, uh, maybe even by double digits, if that happens, and and uh, and Milton doesn't play well. But but I, I'm I'm going to show a little confidence in him. I'm going to show a little confidence in the Vols bouncing back, and I'm going to take Tennessee on the road. And what um, you know, this has always been like a rivalry because they're bordering states. But uh, from a football standpoint, his his you know, not until recently been much of a contest. Um, So uh, Kentucky definitely a threat to Tennessee where they didn't, uh, where they weren't for such a long time, but um, I'm, I'm taking Tennessee to win. So uh, with that, George, um, we agree on three, disagree on two, and uh, we'll see who comes out the winner between the two of us on Saturday. And so thanks to our picks partner, Better man for bringing us this segment each and every week.
1: Yeah. And listen, um, uh, it's been another great show and sadly we have to wrap it up. So, but thanks also to our uh, the partner for on my heart legacy way. We appreciate you guys. And thanks, especially as always to our presenting partner, subsplash subsplash. It's so much more than just a church software. It brings people together, empowers giving, fosters discipleship and transforms lives. Book a demo today at subsplash.com slash SBC. There's a special discount for churches if you use that link. Again, S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash S-B-C, subsplash.com slash S-B-C. And I need to remind you guys to visit us online at gridironandthegospel.com. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at gridiron underscore gospel. We'd love for you guys to, to follow us there. You can email us at gridirongospelpod at gmail.com. Please, we'd love to take your questions. We'd love to talk to you about football, but more importantly, about faith. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. We're on all the major podcasting platforms. Just search for Gridiron and the gospel, right? So And, and listen, I know we, could, we say this every week, but it's so true, Brad. There's so many things we didn't even touch today. But if you tune in next week, we'll give you more of Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith in college football podcast, and it's a BP Sports production.